0: Americans, this is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute.
0: And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Today, we're joined by my friend, Lindsay Marie. She is a contributor to Town Hall, a regular guest on Nigel & Hammer and Indie Politics in Indianapolis, and a non-resident fellow at the Lone Star Policy Institute. We're going to talk mainly about opioids and current opioid litigation. But since Lindsay Marie is a big L libertarian, we'll also Probably talk a little bit about uh, 2020 and uh, sort of just a, an overview of uh, politics today. Before we get into the details of the opioid litigation, talk a little bit about what the whole situation is in terms of what is this opioid crisis? What are opioids? Give us a little bit of background.
2: Definitely. So the first thing I think a lot of people get wrong is they assume that opioids are only prescription drugs. And that's not the case. Um, You also have fentanyl, which can be prescription or illicit. And you also have things like heroin. And so we hear the word, you know, opioid epidemic and opioid crisis. And I don't know that there's a clear definition of what that is. It's kind of up to everyone's interpretation. But basically, um, there's been a huge uptick in addiction and overdoses. So you have states trying to find ways to curb this, um, but they're looking at the courts instead of looking to what they can do within their own states as far as maybe mental health and things like that.
0: Who just in general, who's most affected by the opioids? Sort of give us the demographics, who's this really affecting?
2: So we always hear that it affects everyone. You know, you hear on the media that everyone's affected by it and you know someone and it doesn't discriminate. And that's kind of true, but there are definitely factors that uh, play into addiction, especially with opioids. So we know that two thirds of people that have an addiction to opioids had at least one severe childhood trauma. We also know that those that are either unemployed or in poverty are way more likely to have the addiction. And we also know that the majority of people that are new addicts, they're not getting these prescriptions from their doctor. They're not pain patients. They're people that are getting them illegally, um, and that's how their addiction is starting.
0: So explain that part to me. If the drugs are being passed illegally, I'm assuming that these are all prescription drugs. So how does that happen?
2: So there obviously are the prescription drugs, but there's also the ones that are being made on the black market that are basically synthetic versions of what you could get from a doctor. And addiction rates are no different for either one. But we have seen a huge uptake in the ones that are illicitly made, the synthetic fentanyls, because number one, they're easier to get. You don't have to go to a doctor to get them. Typically, they're cheaper and they're way more stronger. So just like prohibition in the 20s, when you make something illegal, you have a black market that happens and you start getting substances that are stronger, maybe smaller in size and also cheaper. And unfortunately, that's led to an uptick on fentanyl, which is way more powerful than a prescription drug that you would normally get from a doctor.
0: So just sort of background, who's typically bears the blame for this? I don't mean necessarily sort of who you blame, but who do people typically blame for the crisis?
2: We see it all the time, it's big bad pharma. Um, everyone likes to say that they're the, this awful industry and they're terrible and sort of overlook the good things that they do as well. But to say that they're responsible for addiction is insane, um, for a lot of reasons. One is that addiction is not based on availability. Because if it was, then two-thirds of the United States would be addicted to opioids right now, based on how many have been on them at some point in their lives. We're not all alcoholics. We've all been exposed to alcohol. Addiction's a mental health issue, and it has to do with the brain and, and emotional issues, not just physical issues.
1: Well, I would say that, yeah, you know, obviously there are other factors involved, but surely the supply side of opioids has to have Something to do with it, right? I mean, you know, some people get prescribed opioids and they don't become addicts, but some people get prescribed opioids and they do become addicts, right?
2: So um, most studies will show that about 1% of people who have no history of drug abuse will become addicted or basically experience the onset of addiction when given opioids. That's a lot different than sort of the stats we hear a lot of times in the media. Um, But for those who have never had the issue before, who have never abused drugs, it's about 1%.
0: Why don't you tell us a little bit about the litigation that you've been tracking? I believe that there's several cases out there. So give us an overview of maybe not case by case, but give us a sample of what's happening in the case law.
2: So I think right now I've seen estimates between 1,800 and almost 2,000 lawsuits that have been filed by states, by cities, against different drug manufacturers. And the main case right now is based out of Oklahoma. The state has sued, originally it was Teva, Purdue, and also Johnson & Johnson. Teva and Purdue both settled out of court, and Johnson & Johnson decided to go ahead and try it. And the lawsuit is blaming them for what they're calling a public nuisance, They're saying that Johnson & Johnson misled doctors and made false claims that then led to overprescribing rates that then led to addiction and overdose. And they're blaming basically this one company for all the overdoses and all the addiction that's happening. And there's some big issues with that when it comes to tort law, because you have to find who's actually responsible. And to say that they're responsible solely for what's happening in every single case is just not plausible. So typically, in other states, judges have completely thrown the lawsuits out. And I'm surprised that in this case, they've actually allowed this because this is sort of unheard at this point. And it's becoming a bit of a test case to see if, you know, they end up reaching a verdict and the pharmaceutical companies at fault, what this does then for the remaining 1900 cases or whatever, um, if this is going to be the big tobacco sort of situation of the 90s or not. And the other issue they're going to have with these cases is sort of the damages and the money aspect. So the states are saying, well, because we have all these overdoses and the addiction, we have an uptick now in costs for, say, police officers and first responders and maybe the ER. But to say that, One company that makes only two different kinds of opioids specifically is causing every single one of these is also just not plausible. Most people who do have an overdose situation, there's more than one substance in their body. It's not just solely one opioid. And say in Oklahoma, for instance, um, that second substance is normally like an antidepressant or something. So this isn't a case where it's very easy to pinpoint Um, you know, the opioid caused this where it was for big tobacco, potentially.
1: Would they have to establish that the opioids were causing everything?
2: They'd have to use some kind of crazy math that I could never figure out to establish what percentage of everything was caused by that one company and that one thing. Because truth be told, Johnson & Johnson only has two opioid products. Um, One's a patch, which anyone knows anything about opioids, you don't really hear about people trafficking and the patches. It's normally the pills. And the other product they have is called Nucenta. And there are studies that have been shown that that one is one of the least likely ones to be um, illegally sold. So they're kind of going after at this point, a company that doesn't have a huge stake in this sort of game. And to say that those products cost something and, and divide up that math somehow is next to impossible.
0: I don't think we've touched on this. Maybe you maybe you did. But companies like Johnson & Johnson, what is their legal defense? Can you sort of articulate what their t- defense has typically been?
2: A lot of it's been basically based on the fact that, you know, these products were approved by the FDA. Um, they have the box warning that says, you know, this can cause addiction. And then a lot of it's based on just tort law saying, you know, there's no proximate cause that we're responsible for this and it's sort of more of a legal defense. But I think a lot of people saw the tobacco lawsuits of the 90s and thought this is going to be a slam dunk with opioids. But those products weren't approved by the FDA. They hadn't gone through you know vigorous standards, and there was no health benefit. Whereas these are shown to have medical benefits, it's a lot harder to say that they're now responsible for this. And also, um, like I said, a lot of it's just the nuance of the tort law where their lawyers are very, very intelligent, and uh, they've dug really deep in this. And so far, it's been very successful in almost every state getting their stuff dismissed.
0: With this many cases, are there? I guess there's, there's probably been some, some judgments. How are the drug companies, the pharmaceutical companies, typically faring?
2: So the only judgments I've actually seen so far, as far as a you know a judge handing it down, not a settlement. Were for things that were like fraud, not necessarily this kind of case that has to do with addiction and um, creating a public nuisance. It was more marketing stuff that was in violation of federal code. And it wasn't they were saying that this is not addictive at all. It was just sort of more nuanced marketing that didn't quite match up as far as settlements go. This case, Tiva settled right before this trial started, and they settled for about 85 million. Purdue settled for 270. Truth be told, I was surprised that Purdue settled because they've been winning all of their motions to dismiss. Um, But at this point, when you have so many cases mounting against you and you only can spend so much time every day trying to defend them, you've got to pick your battles. And I think they probably saw that 270 million was a lot better of a deal right now been trying to go through the litigation and having to put all their other cases on hold.
0: So, if you were in charge of public policy, what would you do?
2: First of all, I would not be spending my time going after these companies. I would start to look at, you know, what's causing addiction, what's happening cuz when the prescriptions go up, that doesn't affect the overdose rate at all. So, we know that it's not necessarily prescriptions are linked to overdose. And so a lot of this is mental health and a lot of it has to do with just economic factors. So in I- areas where there's not a lot of job development and a lot of people are out of work, that's when you see an um, uptick in sort of the overdose rates and addiction. So when you start to fix those things, that starts to make things a little bit easier. But I think the other thing that's interesting is these states claim that these drugs are so awful and you know they're creating this public nuisance and they're calling them like drug kingpins, yet they're still continuing to reimburse the state reimburse for them. So if a doctor writes a prescription for, say, I don't know, um, OxyContin, and the person has Medicaid, state Medicaid, the state is still reimbursing for that. If they were really serious that and really thought this was a huge deal, they wouldn't reimburse for it anymore. I'm not saying that's what I would do, but I'm just saying that would be another alternative if they really cared about stopping the addiction, if they really thought that was the root cause. There's just a lot of other ways to attack this, and it's more through a private business can work. I think that when we start getting more treatment facilities in place, more mental health professionals, that starts to change things a lot.
0: Let me ask you this, and I've seen some headlines along these lines, but I haven't studied this by any means. Would legalizing, say, marijuana, have there been any studies, more than just a a theory out there, have, have there been any studies that would indicate if legalizing marijuana would lead to less addiction to opioids or would it take something far more powerful as an alternative to an opioid than, than just mere marijuana
2: I think I've seen a couple studies that relate to marijuana in states that where it's medically legal um, state Medicaid and how much money they were saving prescribing that versus opioids we didn't really talk too much about addiction a lot of people do argue that would be one option I don't know if I think from a scientific perspective, that marijuana would have the same effect on the brain as, say, an opioid, depending on the receptors it's actually going to work against. But I'm all for that if that's something that someone could use potentially instead of an opioid, and that's what they want to do, I think that should be allowed. But I think it's up to the doctor and the patient um, and that the government you know, coming in and banning all substances or not allowing some is not probably the best option.
0: Of course, you're a big L libertarian, so we wouldn't expect anything else.
2: <laughs> I just have common sense. <laughs> So one thing also is that all these states that are now hiring lawyers to pursue these cases, they're hiring them on contingency. And most of the contracts that I've seen and heard about are about a 25 to 30 percent Contingency, meaning the settlement that the state ends up getting, they're going to be getting about a third of it, and we're talking billions and billions of dollars. So the lawyers are very happy about this, obviously. And we have a lot of lawyers from the tobacco days that are now coming and trying to go to states and convince them to go ahead and and pursue the lawsuits as well. For instance, in Texas, the lawyers there was five lawyers, um, they get three point three billion just for what they've done in that lawsuit. So. What this is, is it's sort of a lot of lawyers that are looking for a payday. It's a lot of politicians who are looking for good PR. And it's basically just a government-led shakedown against the private industry.
0: I I don't know why that all the hate for lawyers. We just, we we have to make a living.
2: Well, so does pharma.
0: So let's turn to sort of retail politics a little bit. We're already into uh, the the 2020 presidential election cycle. Since you're a uh, libertarian, let me ask you, who's going to be the Libertarian Party nominee? Is it going to be John McAfee?
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be John McAfee. Um, in 2016, he, he did seek the nomination. And on I think it was the third vote. At that point, he only received about 14%. And Austin Peterson got 21. Uh, Gary Johnson got 49.5 at that point. So even in 2016, he was a little bit lower in the totem pole and you had Austin beating him. So it's a very contentious race. I don't think that 2020, the libertarians are going to be more apt to put him on the ballot, but he is apparently running for the nomination.
0: Do we know where he is and if he's under uh, federal custody?
2: He's not under federal custody. He has uh, fled the country as of, I want to say, maybe two months, two and a half months ago. He said that he got word that, I guess, maybe there was a warrant or a grand jury involving him. So he took his boat and went out in the Bahamas, and he's just been living the dream, apparently, on the run. And he's still running his Bitcoin and crypto companies from afar. But it'll be interesting to see if he actually makes land to come back for the Libertarian Convention in 2020 or not.
0: So who do you think is going to be the nominee?
2: You know, it's really hard to tell because... Just like the Democrats or the Republicans, the Libertarian Party is not just sort of a one size fits all. It's not vanilla. You have different caucuses. So we have a caucus, the Pragmatic Caucus, which would be more wanting a Justin Amash because he's going to push the party forward and we're going to get more votes and more press. And it makes sense because the country isn't ready for maybe a John McAfee or somebody else. And then you have the radical caucus, which is the people that are more concerned about principle and not allowing any of that to slip through. And they wouldn't probably want a Justin Amash. They'd want someone that they consider more pure. So it's really going to depend on who those delegates are at that convention and which way they're going to sway. There's been a lot of talk internally about Amash, obviously. I would say it's split. Mm
1: -hmm. Justin Amash is a Republican,
2: right? Yep. So Gary Johnson was a former Republican. Bill Weld was a former Republican and current Republican.
1: And current Republican.
2: (laughs) And and also, you know, Ron Paul ran under the ticket and was a Republican. So it wouldn't be that out of the norm. He's sort of Republican that the libertarians can stomach. And a lot of them do like him. But, you know, then you have the other side that says we have to stick to the 100% purity test and he has the R behind his name and let's bring pitchforks out. Um, So it would be very contentious.
1: And he would have to decide that he wanted to run, I guess.
2: Yeah, he'd have to do that. He's got some time um, and he would definitely have to court the party. Obviously, he'd have to join and things like that. But it wouldn't be as big as if he was switching to maybe like the Democrats or something, which I don't think he'd ever do. But the process is a little less informal. But I think probably the libertarians want the ring kissed way more than any other party. So if you're coming in, like you better put on a show.
1: Let me ask this, and I don't mean this, so this could potentially be interpreted as a hostile question. I don't mean (laughs) it that way. I think it's actually something that when I've asked people, they've given me radically different answers to. So what is the point of the libertarian party, right? And by that, I mean... So well, I, and and you know, I don't mean that in a hostile way. But what I mean is, you know, with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the point of those is to get folks elected so that they can push forward a legislative or ideological agenda or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but with something like the Libertarian Party, you know, if you're running for the Libertarian nomination for president, you probably think uh, or or you could be pretty sure, okay, I'm not actually going to win, right? Uh, may, maybe mm-hmm. so. I mean, uh, I heard an interview with John McAfee where they said, could you win? And he said, no. <laughs> when I talk to a lot of folks, winning is not necessarily what they're in for. Some some folks, maybe they do want to win ultimately. But, you know, when you're talking about a, a party that traditionally has gotten, you know, maybe one percent of the vote if they're lucky. You know, what is the purpose then of running, selecting candidates and and, and all the stuff like what are yeah. are trying to be
2: So basically, um, we don't just run a presidential candidate. We have candidates from the top to the bottom in every state in every election. So especially in, in I can't I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but there's a good chunk of the states where we don't have just guaranteed ballot access. And the Republicans and Democrats, they write the laws that say who can get on the ballot and how. And a lot of those states have to do with the percentage that you get in the previous presidential election. So if we don't run someone in a presidential year, that means we can't run anyone for even dog catcher in some states the following election year, or we can't run someone for state rep or city council. Um, So ballot acts is a huge thing for that. And then it's also giving someone another choice. You know, we know in economics, the more competition you have, the more that participation increases. And so I think it's a good idea to have a third choice at least, because when I look at the two parties, I don't see two parties. I see one party. I see on one hand a group wants to use government force to tell me how to live my life and how to spend my money. And I see it the same way, the same concept on the other side, just in different ways. So to have a party that doesn't want to use government force to tell you what you can and can't do and how you should or shouldn't live your life, I think is a good thing.
1: So I mean, is then the, the long term goal is that the Libertarian Party would grow and become more popular to the point where, as with the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, you would have, you know, like. States with libertarian governor, governors, libertarian legislative majorities and libertarian presidential candidates who would win under the party ticket, that, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I know a lot of libertarians are keyword warriors, so it kind of seems like a hobby project. <laughs> but uh, no, the long term gain- goal is to gain seats state level and up. And, um, you know, the party is new. It's only been around since 1971 and it's the fastest growing political party and it has been for the last couple of years. We also know from history that most political parties will eventually break up or die. The Day of Reckoning is coming probably for one of the two major parties, just statistically and historically. There's a new sort of consensus that's building, I think, especially with younger voters who are more libertarian. So I think a lot of the right things are sort of falling into place to where, you know, 15, 20 years from now, things might look a little bit different. Not saying we're going to have a libertarian in the White House, but we're going to start getting people elected at lower levels, and then starting to build that bench.
1: We have had the same two parties for like 150 years, though, right? I mean, it's-
2: yeah, but I'm just saying historically the Whigs, I mean, things are gonna change eventually. <laughs> Plus, like I mean, you see both parties right now if they're divided. I mean, you have the Trumps and the never Trumpers, and then on the left you have the AOCs, and then you sort of have like the what's left of the blue dog democrats. Where do those people fall? Eventually they're not gonna have a home because they're gonna be ousted so far. And then, you know, there really isn't like a true centrist party or moderate party you would fall either a libertarian or maybe green, depending on where you came from.
0: Well, and we just just had an episode with uh, Ramesh Panuru, and we talked a little bit about this idea of where the conservative consensus is and where it's going. And I brought up the fact that David Brooks just had this piece uh, highlighting that uh, Republicans, I guess, among millennials, uh, only 12 percent identified themselves as conservatives. And I think he titled this piece The GOP Apocalypse. We talked a little bit about how that during the Cold War, there was this conservative movement that had a that had a loose coalition. And one of the things that was unifying was, you know, the Soviets. And then that sort of fell apart. But during that time, there was this concept of fusionism. This was sort of the Bill Buckley idea of the conservatives, the libertarians, playing nicely together. And that seems to be falling apart to the extent that now you've got uh, Tucker Carlson, as I mentioned last time. Tucker Carlson's out saying that uh, Republican members of Congress are a bunch of overzealous libertarians, libertarians with a small l. Do you see libertarian-minded people, maybe the, as other people have called them, conservatarians. Where do you see them fitting into the political scene at this point? Do you think that there's still a conservative movement that they're welcome in? Or do you think they're going to, I don't know, become neoliberals and move towards the left? Where do you see their future?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't really see much of a conservative movement these days. I mean, other than, you know, Amash, Massey, and Rand. I mean, how many Republican senators and congressmen continuously vote to increase the debt ceiling, increase spending, to a Allow government surveillance that's warrantless um, to infringe on liberty and to increase regulations. I don't, <laughs> there isn't a conservative movement. It, it died, I don't know how long ago. I don't know that it's even been there in my lifetime, to be honest, when you look at it objectively. So I think some of the things that maybe a decade or two or three ago that libertarians could have gotten along with conservatives on they're not really there anymore. Like those conservatives aren't holding those principles anymore. So libertarians were sort of the only ones still complaining about the debt. They're the ones still complaining about certain things. And it's not just conservatives. You have that happening on the left too with things like free speech. But, you know, libertarians can get along with them as well when it comes to certain topics. So it's sort of... 50% 50% of the time, I can kind of understand Republicans, and 50% I can kind of understand liberals, but uh, I just think the principle is completely gone.
0: I think this just calls for a, a hostile question or hostile response from Josiah in defense of conservatives. Josiah, where do you think she's wrong?
1: Well, so as we discussed in our, in some prior podcasts or whatever the conservative movement is kind of a big mess <laughs> so i don't i don't disagree with that but parties and the different ideologies of different factions are kind of uh complicated coalitional work and process always i, I would say
0: <laughs> my favorite writer is kevin williamson and i've noticed he's been writing very often very short sentences it's complicated and i think that's uh, i think that's where things are these days
1: Yeah, well, I mean, but it's always been pretty complicated. So for a long time, you had this weird thing where the parties in the US were not ideologically sorted. So you had a, a lot of progressive Republicans and conservative Democrats. And then after the 60s, you started to have kind of a big sort where all the conservatives moved into the Republican Party and all the liberals and progressives moved into the Democratic Party and, you know, that changed the nature of politics quite a bit. There's no reason why it necessarily has to be that way. You you could have, you know, maybe there will be some subsequent realignment or resorting. Politics will get divided on along different lines than just ideology, and you could have the reemergence of that again. Maybe not. I don't know.
0: Josiah, do you have any other uh,
1: wacky questions for a libertarian uh, yes yeah, so you, you live in uh, in Indianapolis is that right or Indiana
2: well I live in Indiana yes
1: okay not not in Indianapolis
2: no but I'm up there every week for work so
1: okay all right like I, I don't want to dox you or anything but I used to live in Terre Haute so I oh, okay uh, interesting I don't know what if you live in uh, in what direction you get to in, uh, Indianapolis from but um, uh,
2: I can't I come up from the southern part of the state. Okay. All right. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you seen uh, – so I assume you've seen Hoosiers. You've seen Hoosiers? <laughs> you've seen Hoosiers?
2: <laughs> um, I have not. You have
1: not. Okay. Oh, my All gosh. Right. No. That's fine. Have uh, not. So it seemed that Indiana was a bit of an odd state in that it had, like, kind of a weird mix of southern and northern culture in it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so I I wanted to, you know, just gauge your impressions on that. But if you've only ever lived in Indiana, you might have it not anything to compare it with, I guess.
2: Uh. (laughs) Well, I mean, I've traveled a lot and I've lived short term other places, but it is an interesting mix because you have an overwhelmingly very supportive of Trump base. But then you also have on the Democratic side, you would think maybe it'd be like maybe a Biden base, but it was actually a Bernie Sanders base. Yeah. So like in Indy, it's very liberal and then near Louisville. So like New Albany. I think there's like one other area, Um, so it's mainly red. But I guess it was uh, the last election, Mike Braun was running, and you know Trump had won Indiana by like I don't want to say like twenty percentage points or something crazy like that, and Braun like only won by about half of what Trump had won by. So there might be a tiny little shift that's slowly happening. But the coolest thing about Indiana politics is there's a county called um, Vigo or Vigo County, yeah. And for the last I don't know how many decades now they basically predict the entire election presidential-wise. So whatever they go with is normally what the outcome of the presidential election is. So they're a good bellwether to kind of watch and see what's happening there.
1: I used to live in Vigo County there where Terre Haute is. And so I was not that surprised by Trump because it's been trending more Republican, but it's a, it's a Democratic area, but it was a very kind of blue-collar union background kind of Democrat. I mean, I remember shortly after I moved there, it was the 2006 election. And I saw a campaign ad for one of the congressional candidates, uh, who the guy who actually won. And his ad was basically, I'm pro-Second Amendment. I'm pro-life. You know, we need to control uh, our borders. I forget what the last one was. I think he was like, and I support the Patriot Act or something like that. <laughs> and he, he was a Democrat.
2: <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I mean, so Joe Donnelly, who was the senator for a while, I mean, he was a blue dog Democrat. And, right. you know, the right kept trying to beat him up and say, you know, he's... Nancy's puppet and all these like, you know, he's the next AOC to try and dirty him up. But when you looked at his voting record, he voted with Trump like 60, 70 percent of the time. He voted to confirm all of Trump's nominees, including like Pompeo and um, other than Kavanaugh, you know, Gina Haspel, people that I would sort of be like, what the heck are you doing? He voted to fund the wall and he ran ads this year or last year when he was running about, you know, I voted to fund the wall. I'll give him however much he wants. He's pro Second Amendment. He's pro life. But we also saw that most of those Democrats lost their reelection bids last year because of that kind of stuff. The Democratic Party's moving way left and there's not as much room for people like him anymore.
1: I think that's part of the kind of sorting that I was referring to earlier is that um, it's kind of a dying breed. Yes, yeah, so uh, Indiana is, is a very interesting Place politically for that for that reason, I guess.
2: Well, we've been in the news. I mean, because we had you know we have Vice President Pence, and then we have Pete Buttigieg. So it's like it seems like there's always something linked to Indiana lately with presidential or vice presidential news. Or re- elections i should say
1: and mitch daniels back in the day there's a lot of speculation that he would run and
0: i too am from indiana but uh lindsey marie and i we actually met here in texas matt welch had a small reason happy hour i guess it was last fall or so actually right. it was
2: like a year ago as of a
0: year, a year september ago. okay yeah so i guess a little ways back but uh yeah matt welch at reason had a ha- small happy hour in austin well attended and uh there was a mystery guest that I understand was in the room that I did not identify and I did not um, oh, did not recognize.
2: David Burge.
0: David Burge.
2: How do you know?
0: Um, see, I've never so Josiah's met him. I haven't actually met him, but I was at the I was at a uh, Atlas Liberty Forum dinner. Was talking uh, later with Matt Welch and Nick Gillespie and uh matt welch brought up the fact that david burge was actually there and, and i think he uh well i won't describe uh how he was dressed because apparently he likes to go incognito but apparently
1: he was in the room and, and i didn't know it was him
2: yeah he was there
1: right but well, he does not allow people to disseminate his likeness online <laughs> yep. put, it, put it that way but uh yeah he's a good guy Iowa. Hot. Really?
0: One of my favorite follows actually. You know,
1: speaking of Joe Biden, our possible next president, I am excited, you know, The Onion used to do all these yes. Joe Biden uh parody stories. I don't know if you're familiar with these, Doug or, or Lindsay, like, you know. Joe Biden washing his T Bird on the White House lawn, or Joe Biden, you know, fleece to Mexico until things calm down.
2: My favorite was the inflatable pool one.
1: My favorite one of those is not actually from The Onion, it's from Iowa Hawk. And it was basically about how Joe Biden was planning on jumping over the Grand Canyon, evil Knievel style, but he was going to do it in a high speed rail train. If you're out there and you want to, Google the various terms, you can find this thing. It's, it's hilarious.
0: So I just took the family to the Grand Canyon, I guess, back in maybe February, and we were able to get pictures uh, right where Evel Knievel jumped the Grand Canyon.
1: Very cool. Where, where he where he landed or, or where he took off? It's actually an urban myth. Joe Biden also didn't jump the Grand Canyon in a high-speed rail train. It was a, it was a parody, parody piece.
2: Was this before or after they discovered the radiation that you went?
0: <laughs> it was. It was literally just after. <laughs> so we were excited about that. Right,
2: Your awesome. teeth extra white.
0: Uh, yeah, they, they look amazing now. <laughs> Lindsay Marie, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. They're not all prescription drugs um, because there are different versions now.
0: Did you say prescription (laughs) drugs? That's what I heard.
2: Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a new drug.